Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for all the opportunities that we have to spread your word. And we thank you, Father, for this Wednesday night that you have given us to study your word and to edify ourselves and to be more equipped to do to do uh, what you've called us to do. And so, Father, bless our time. Illuminate us to your holy, uh, through your Holy Spirit to the scriptures. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we want to start now on a uh, <clears throat> new subject matter in the text of 2 Timothy 3.10. So, as he has said, that the way he made it through perilous times, um, obviously, he says, you... you, you you got to follow my doctrine. Well, we went over that extensively, um, and we talked about theology. Now we're going to move into the second aspect called the manner of life. And the manner of life is a different category. They're all linked together, but we want to focus in on that. After we're done with this, we'll go to purpose, then we'll go to faith, long-suffering, lo- uh, suffering, love, and perseverance, all in its time. So um, let's focus in on manner of life. Okay. So when Paul says that, in order to survive perilous times, which the times are coming right now, we're in perilous times where all the junk that's happening, and, uh, and we'll talk more about that in our prophecy update later tonight, but a lot of things are happening, and people are, 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 are bearing this weight. They feel it. They understand it. That something is big happening, and, uh, and this is how you cope. So, manner of life. Okay. So when he mentioned, Paul mentions manner of life, he's talking about the guiding principles that controlled Paul's outward life. And so um, this is the key to understanding of how to, how to actually do your walk in the Lord you know, and, and walk in fellowship with him is that um, when we start off as a uh, Christian in our, in our younger days, spiritually speaking, uh, we tend to do things outwardly, you know, okay, now I'm going to church, now I'm, I'm not doing this, and I'm not doing that, I'm not hanging out with my friends anymore, that would bring me down, and those are all outward things, which are, it's a, kind of a natural progression of, of when someone gets saved, they're able to fix the outward first, many times, sometimes they don't, sometimes they have to fight through it, but the first thing that's easier is the outward, Okay. And here's the, the deadly mistake in this is that you can start there, but you can't finish there. So the outward is a reflection of the inward that's going on in your life. So at some point in time, you have to grow mature enough to say, wait a second, why do I do the things I do? Because I'm irritated by it. And I remember, you know, early in my, my Christian walk, I, I, I was, you know, calling out to God. I don't understand why I keep doing this. I can't like, it's like almost like I can't stop. And what he revealed to me in scripture was, well, your problem, Brandon, is because of what's gone on on the inside, okay? And so then that starts you down another path, realizing that the two are connected and just simply dealing with the outward is not enough. So for instance, you know, unfortunately, there's bad counseling out there, bad Christian counseling. And so, like, for instance, you know, I, I've always used this topic, like the topic of pornography. And, and, and so guys would come to me and say, hey, man, I have, I'm struggling with the pornography issue, and I can't stop. I just can't stop. 
and they have went to counseling. I said, what, what has some people told you? And they would say, well, they said, well, I, I need to cut off my computer and I need to cut off my phone and I need, I need to be accountable to, my, to my, lot, uh, my wife more. And those are all good things. I'm not saying that's not. And, uh, I, you know, um, I need to eliminate my access to it. That's fine. And that's good, but it won't solve the problem. Okay. Because the pornography issue is not an outside problem. The pornography is an inside problem. And it's not actually what you think it really is. If people think it's about, well, it's just lust, well, that's part of it. There's no doubt about it. But what happens is lust, love turns into lust satanically. And, and, and then acceptance or rejection play the part in the internal of the individual. And so the basis of pornography is uh, love, acceptance, and the lack of rejection that they get from this escape, okay? And, and that's true with a lot of sins, by the way. It's a way of escape. Uh, it's a way of, of not being rejected. It's a way of being accepted. And, and that seems to be the pivotal role for a lot of people in them struggling with sin, okay? I, I will say this is the most dominant. Okay, that being the case, in order to correct the outside, then you have to work on the inside and you have to go to the deeper levels uh, and not just simply, you know, through self-effort, don't do bad things because you won't be able to maintain it. What'll happen is you'll cycle. You'll cycle through things. So you're good for a while and then you go back to it. Then you're good for a while and then you go back to it. And then you have the whole cycle of shame and rejection happening at the same time. So you cycle back into it after you do it, you feel ashamed, you feel bad, you beat yourself up, you get on the straight and narrow, and then you're, you're back in fellowship, and then you do it again, and then you feel the shame, and then you feel this, all that, and it just continues to cycle and cycle. The problem is it's a downward cycle. You just don't stay at the top. You actually go downward. The more you do it, the more enslaved you become to the, whatever sin. That's what sin does. It enslaves you. So um, you don't, I don't want you to any, anybody to think that, well, I'm just, I'm just cycling. Um, where we get the cycling is from the book of Judges. The book of Judges uh, illustrates Israel's cycling, but the book of Judges, and, and you can see the cycle um, in Israel, okay? They'll, they'll, they'll sin, get jacked up, get judged by God, call out for mercy, get mercy, get reestablished, and then they're back worshiping idols again. And it's a cycle. But the, what Judges shows is that it's a downward cycle. It just keeps getting worse. Every cycle just keeps getting worse every time we go. So you got to understand that, and, and that principle is from the book of Judges. Okay, so let's, let's, let's do some preliminary understandings about how to work on the inside since that is the way, the key way to get to spiritual maturity. So Christianity in its early days was not called Christianity. It was called the way. That was a term in the first century and into the second century, which referred to the path or as a metaphor for the conduct of life, okay? The way, the conduct of life that, that, that you were supposed to live. Again, implying the inward is controlling the outward. So this is the, the, the idea that... There should be, and notice the word I'm using, should, not must, okay? 
there should be a correlation between the believer and where they're at theologically with their behavior. Should be. It's not, it's, it's not hard and fast. So remember, Calvinism and Arminian, which we are not, hold to a false paradigm. And the false paradigm says, well, um, your works either prove you're saved uh, or maintain your salvation or by bad works, you lose your salvation. So a Calvinist would say that a Christian's behavior must be connected, okay? So if you don't live a Christian life, then you're not saved. And that's their, 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 their immediate uh, response. I will say this, it's one category, but it's not all the categories if someone's behavior doesn't match up to what they profess. It is, you know, one category of tares and wheats, that's true, but it's not just a blanket. There's more categories involved in this. Okay, so the Arminian would say, well, your works, if you don't have your good works, uh, then you've you've lost salvation and you're not, it wasn't that you weren't saved, it's that uh, you lost salvation. So the Calvinist comes at it as, you weren't saved to begin with. That's why you're messing up and you can't get out of your sin. So you need to be saved. And the Arminian is telling you, no, it's that you're losing salvation. You have to get salvation again. You have to get saved. So both, both end up in the same paradigm, going right back to salvation, saying, well, you need to be saved again, or you weren't saved the first time. And now you need to be saved. You see how the paradigm works? You, both theological constructs can't get out of the paradigm. But as you can see, once you step out of the paradigm and truly understand what the Bible is saying, both paradigm, well, sorry, the one paradigm that both theologies feed into is wrong because it comes from Gnostic Manichaeanism uh, or Hellenization from the Greeks, virtually Neoplatonism that has entered into Christianity and has not been identified as Neoplatonism and Manichaeanism under Augustine and Calvin and Luther and the rest of them. Okay, and, and that would include Arminius as well. They all got their ideas from Augustine, who was a Gnostic Manichaean and brought Gnostic Manichaeanism into Christianity, and he had no one to stop him. And he went hog wild, and that's the, the plague of the church today. Therefore, you must understand that's a paradigm that's not adequately describing sanctification. Okay, so when you step out of that paradigm, what does the Bible say? It's saying you should, you ought to, you're commanded to do these things in your life, but it should be a reflection of you growing more like Christ, okay? Is it always true? No, it is not always true. That's why I use the word should instead of must, and that's a big deal. So a lot of people continue to sin and they just think they're lost or they, uh, you know, they never were saved and, and they doubt their salvation, they doubt their eternal security, and they doubt whether or not you know, they ever had it. And that's wrong because Christ promises eternal life, which implies it can never be taken away from you. So, it ha- so the passages have to mean something else is what we're trying to say. If Messiah says, believe in me and I will give you eternal life. That is a statement of not only uh, of you being saved, but that it is 
eternally secure because he says, I give you eternal life. And, I, you, and that means if you have eternal life, that means it's eternal. It can't be taken away from you. It's an eternal promise. Okay. So good theology should produce good behavior, but it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. Well, what, what, what happens when a believer doesn't illustrate good behavior? Well, it could be the category of a wheat and tear. That's possible. Could be their carnal. Could be where they're worldly. Could be their Laodicea. Could be their Sardis. And then so you have all these categories for the believer, right? Carnal, worldly, uh, you know, those kind of Laodicean, which is affluent, but worldly. Uh, so you have all these categories. So you have to bring all the categories into bear on the person. But for, for you and I, it's not so much we're trying to, to, to figure out what other people are. You have to figure out what you are. Okay? Am I a tear? I don't know. How, are you convinced that Jesus is the, 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 the Messiah, that, that he is the son of God who paid for your sins on the cross, that he's God in the flesh, he's uh, buried and, and rose on the third day? You, are you convinced by that? And that he has the ability to give you eternal life? If you are convinced by that, that's faith. You're saved if you believe that. That's it. That's all you need. Okay, it's simple. Salvation is very simple that a five-year-old can understand. So if you're convinced that Jesus is the son of God, that he's God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity that died for your sins, paid it all, and you can't work for your salvation, then you're saved. You're convinced by that. Now let's move on. That's just the first step. Now you're justified forensically or legally. But now you must now go into a second step called sanctification which is the outward uh, and inward conformity to the image of Christ, okay? So, as, as mentioned, the key in all this is good theology, okay? Good theology should produce it. So, the way to grow is to have proper theology. You want to be able to think straight. You want to be able to believe correctly. If you believe correctly and think straight, biblically speaking, it should modify your behavior. It should. Okay. But let me tell you this. Bad theology can be hidden by good behavior. I know that sounds crazy, but I want you to think about that. Bad theology can be hidden by good behavior, though. So let me give you an example like Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses. Cults. They do, they do good things, don't they? You know, you, you, the, the, you know, if you really want a good neighbor, get a Mormon. They're really good. Good neighbors. They're, they're great. But their loss is a ball on high weeds. Right? Bad theology. They believe Lucifer is the spirit brother of, uh, of Jesus, right? They believe they're going to become gods. Total cult, right? But good behavior, aren't they? Notice the good behavior is covering up the bad theology. Huh, interesting. And Christians play this game too. Okay? They have bad theology, but then you'll see good behavior. But it's eventually going to catch up to them. Okay? It'll eventually catch up to them. But somehow that's how people hide themselves many, many times. And the good behavior will be seen in good works, which is acts of service to God. So a person can hide their issues 
for some time when they're serving. But if you get close to them enough and you, and you start understanding who they are, you'll notice the bad theology when you talk to them because the bad theology will come out of their mouths. Okay? So here's what I want you to understand. When you're assessing yourself or assessing the others in the manner of life, the manner of life should follow good behavior, but it's not necessarily all the time. So if I'm seeing good behavior and I want to know, and I don't, I don't know what the theology is of a person, then your next step is to listen to them and what they say. Okay? Now, if I hear good theology and then I see the good behavior, oh, it's correlated. Yes. This is what the writer uh, uh, James mentions in James, that the, the behavior is correlated, should be correlated. But if I see good behavior and some dude is telling me Jesus isn't God, what does that tell you? His mouth has revealed his theology. So what you have to understand is behavior should match theology, but not all the time. I've got to listen to what they say. Okay? So in, in, in regards to this, about understanding our manner of life, you have to understand the heart. You have to understand the internal. And so this is in Matthew 7. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, which he destroyed the Pharisees with because they thought the law was simply outwardly. Okay? Now here's what you have to understand. In the first century, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and first century Israel, if you and I lived in that, that probably was one of the most moral, outwardly societies you could have ever lived in. Okay? Morally, outwardly. Okay? There was no rapist running around. There's no, no, none of that. No, no. It was, it was a very morally clean environment outwardly. Outwardly because of the religious zealots and them beating the heads of the people in their synagogues to make sure they do this. Okay? Um, so here comes Jesus. And he's entering in and the Pharisees are claiming good works. Right? But what's the problem? He's revealing that those good works are actually not correlated to their theology. Their theology is bad. Really, really bad. So bad they will reject him, right? So they're very moral, but theology is wrong. Here's what he said about them in Matthew 7, and he'll continue to say this in Matthew 12. Beware of false prophets. So as you read this, what's the context? Just what he said. Who is he talking about? False prophets. He's not talking about your average believer. So this passage is misused too many times. Okay. So what is the the intent? Who is he talking to? He is talking to the people about the religious leaders and their false theologies. And he is calling the religious leaders false prophets and false teachers. Okay? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. What does a sheep's clothing represent? They act like a sheep. 
on the outward, right? It's a wolf inside, but outwardly it's a sheep. I'm sorry, the, the covering is a sheep to make you think they're right with God, okay? But inward, inwardly, in their hearts, they are ravenous wolves. That's who these, these religious leaders are. And then he goes, you will know them by their fruits, okay? What fruits is he talking about? Because he has just told you, he has just told you that they're cloaking themselves in wool, but inwardly they're a wolf. So what fruits is he talking? Because you can't point to good works because the Pharisees look good. So what could he possibly be saying that you'll know them by their fruits? No, not how they act. They're acting like sheep. Okay, look at the metaphor. They're covered by a sheep's skin, by sheep's wool, which represents good works. But he says, "What about them inwardly? They're a wolf." Yes. The way you identify false teachers or false prophets is not by their good work because they look like a sheep. If you identify them by their good works, that's deception because they're cloaked in wool. But inside, inside they're a wolf and they're cloaking that. So how do I know if someone's a wolf? He says by their fruits. If, so if therefore it's not the good works, what must it be? The theology. Ah, okay. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. What did we say the good fruit is then? It's theology. If it's a good tree, it has good theology. But a bad tree bears bad fruit, right? The teachings of them are bad. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Okay, if you know your theology, the fruit, when someone asks you your theology, will stand up and match what the Bible says. Nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So if you ask a false teacher or a false prophet about an issue in theology, more than likely they will get it wrong. More than likely. They'll be off. If you ask a Mormon who Jesus is, they'll be off. If you have the Jehovah Witness, who's Jesus? They'll be off right? Okay. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's that a reference? Into the fire. It's judged. It's going to be judged. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So he's saying, look, there is this correlation between uh, what you believe and how you should live, but it's not a guarantee because the, the false teachers and false prophets, they have good works and yet they have bad theology. Okay. So he's trying to help us understand how to read people, how to read ourselves. Okay. Everyone good on this before I move on. Okay. Okay. So he continues on. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. How are you going to make a tree good? 
or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. How are we going to do that? Okay. There's a bigger picture here, so you got to understand what's preventing the religious leaders from coming to, to the Messiah. He says in John chapter 6, the reason you don't come to me is because you don't believe what my father says about me. That's your problem. And that's in, in John chapter 6, I think it's around 46, and, and he quotes Isaiah 53, 14. And it says that all shall be taught by God. What, well, then Messiah interprets Isaiah 53, verse 14, I think it is. He interprets it and says, the way the Father has drawn you to me is through the, the Old Testament. If you would accept what the Old Testament says, then you would accept me. So the drawing of God the Father to people to the Son is through the word of God. It's not some magical, uh, you know, what the Calvinists, you know, drawing, a mystical drawing. No, no, it's real simple. It's through the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the drawing of the Father to the Son, if people will listen to the Father's word, they will be drawn to the Son if they accept the word of God. That's, that's simple, right? So in concert with what he is talking to about the Pharisees who are lost as a ball in high weeds, either make the tree good and its, good, and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its, uh, its fruit uh, bad. First thing to note is that the Pharisees got to get saved. That's the first thing. And the problem is they can't get past the stumbling block of the Messiah. They can't get past him because they don't understand that they cannot earn their own self-righteousness and earn their salvation through their self-righteousness. They think they can, and Jews today think they can, and Catholics do, and Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, all think they can earn their way to righteousness. And what the Old Testament teaches is exactly what the New Testament teaches. You have to accept a forensic righteousness that comes from God rather than your own. Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him or accounted to him as righteousness. That's what the Old Testament says in Genesis 15. There's a clear indication of salvation. Believe and you're accounted as righteous. So they should have known that righteousness is forensic. They should have known that because it outlines that with Abraham. But they denied it because they wanted to work their salvation. So Judaism had to develop into a works-based religion. So this is how you make a tree good and this is how you make a tree bad. Okay, calls them brood of vipers because that's their true nature. They're snakes. And what is a snake? Why does he say snake, brood of vipers? What does a snake symbolize in the, the Bible? Well, Satan, but... What, yes, good, there you go. There's two aspects to Satan that he'll be uh, um, pictured as, a dragon and a serpent. The serpent goes back to the Garden of Eden, but what was going on in the Garden of Eden? Deception. When it's referencing Satan as a dragon, it's referencing destruction by Satan. So the dragon is destruction, the serpent is deception. Okay, so when he says, you brood of vipers, he says, I know what your game is. 
you're deceiving the people, aren't you? You're deceiving people by the things you say to them. You're giving them a false sense of security. This is not the way to be saved, and you're nothing but the ser- serving the serpent. And he eventually tells them, you speak the native language of your father. Your father's language of the devil. That's who you were of. Anyway, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Bingo, thank you very much. We now understand the concept of how we realize where someone's at theologically. Out of the abundance of their heart. What do you mean the abundance? It's where their treasure is. They will speak from their treasure. What they value will not be seen in their works per se. It may, may not be though, because if they're a wolf in sheep's clothing, they can actually cover up what they're doing by being a, a snake or a wolf in sheep's clothing. But get them to talk. And out of the mouth, the heart speaks. That's how you corner them. You corner them by what they're saying because they will show you what they value. They will show you what they believe. They will show you where the abundance of their treasure is from their heart to their mouth. So my key to you guys in discerning people, and if you're like, man, I can't get a read on them because outwardly they look pretty good, especially you single people that are looking for a date, okay? (laughs) A guy can act good for three hours on a Saturday night. I guarantee you that. (laughs) That's easy. And if you're fooled by three hours on Saturday night, you deserve him then, you know, if, if, if you're that goofy to not see through him. If you're dating somebody, so to speak, or just trying to get a read on somebody, don't watch their behavior most of the time. Yeah, the behavior is sometimes an indication. Sometimes, okay? Get them to speak. Let them talk. The heart will evidence right through them. And, they, and here's the thing. Um, they think they can hide it, but they can't. Now, let's go back to you. Out of the heart, the, uh, or the abundance of the heart, it speaks. So here's the thing you must ask yourself. What do I truly believe based on the things that comes out of my mouth? What comes out of your mouth will reveal what you really believe. Now you can say, I don't believe that. I have my theology or this and that. No, no. Your mouth will evidence what you truly believe. If you catch yourself repeating things over and over again and harping on certain things and and there's really no basis in what you're saying and it's really stupid and you keep doing it, there's something wrong with your heart. That's why you keep saying it over and over and over again. And, 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 And so look at the things that how you respond to uh, certain things that come in your life. Look at what you're saying. And here's the thing. You better believe what you're saying. If you don't believe what you're saying, you're disconnected. Okay? So I'm telling you, you want to know where you're at spiritually? Ask somebody who's close to you, what are the constant recurrent things that I keep saying? And that will tell you what you believe. A good man, out of a good treasure of his heart, good treasure versus bad treasure, right? It's in the heart. 
A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. Good things will come out of their mouth. Good things, edifying things, things that encourage, things that build up, things that speak the truth. Now, there's a time for judgment. There's a time for calling sin out. There's a time for doing that, no doubt about it. But those are good things. Those are good things to call things out, call sin out, encourage, edify, all those things. It's all a big package. Those are good things. So if the heart's right, it will say good things. Okay? If it's not, it won't. Or you could have a muddy mixture of the two. And in the fact that some of the parts of the heart are, are, are darkened and some of them are good and you have a kind of a, a mixture of things coming out of your mouth. Okay. And an evil man out of the evil treasure, what treasure? The things he values, the things he wants, the desires that he has in his heart brings forth evil things. But I say to you that, oops, where my, where my thing going? I went too far. For every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. Now, this is not talking about justification by faith, because he's saying your words will justify you. Faith is what justifies you for salvation. So he must be talking about another kind of justification, and he is. He is not talking about faith, okay, not getting saved. He's saying, by your words, you will be dikaiothes in the Greek, which means vindicated, cleared of any accusation with evidence of theology. And by your words, you will be condemned. And this is kata dekas thes which means unvindicated, you will stand accused of the evidence of bad theology. So how does this play itself out then? Your words will condemn you or either justify you. And he's speaking, if you notice, for every idle word, men. So it's a universal. He's not saying false teachers and false prophets. He's now making a universal application with the text, right? So he's saying this applies to everybody. But it's going to apply different ways to believers as it will apply to unbelievers, okay? So what is the idea of being vindicated? It means that in, in the judgment of works, remember, the Bema seat is a judgment of, of the believer's works, right? It's not a judgment of whether you're saved or not. You wouldn't be at the Bema seat if you're not saved, all judgments are a judgment of works because that decision of being saved or not has already been made. Sheep and goat judgment. There are already sheep and goats before they get there. It's just a matter of identifying them. And that's what he's doing by separating the two out. But he already knows who the sheep and goats are, right? Uh, and then the great white throne judgment, if you look at Revelation 20, it's by your works. So again, it's not referring to salvation. So if, if you're at the Bema seat and it's about your good works versus your bad works and rewards, then how do your words play into this? How do your words play into good works? Because they're going to be used, against, used for you or against you in your good works. Okay, so 
good theology should produce good works, right? Okay? How do we know you have good theology? By your words. So by your words, which indicate good theology, it should correlate to good works. Good theo- So typically speaking, in general, you have good theology, it will translate into good works. Hence, those works will be rewarded. If you as a Christian do not develop your theology very well and you stay at an infantile understanding of theology and you're not up on your Christology and all on your soteriology and all, all the other ologies that you should be up on, after so many years, and, and you say, well, what's the, what's the, um, what's the range, Brandon, of where, from being a new believer to being mature? Do you really want to know? Because it's not 20 years or 30 years. It's three years. Paul mentions to the Corinth church that he started. He says, by now, you should be on the meat of the word. And you're not, you're carnal still. So guess what? When you look at the timing of when he started that and when he said that to the Corinth church, it had been a matter of three years and he fully expected them to be up to speed at that point in time and they weren't. So when people ask, well, how long, is, uh, how, where, how long does it take to get to spiritual maturity? Well, it's an ongoing process. There's no doubt about that. But to know your theology properly, it should take you about three years to get your theology up to where it needs to be. No one's asking you to be the apostle Paul. No one's asking you to be a theologian, but you should know how to deal with cults. That would be a good evidence of you knowing your theology. How do you defend uh, faith alone versus works? How do you defend the, the Trinity? How do you defend the, the, the hypostatic union of Christ and all these other things? How do you defend your position on eschatology? If you do not know how to defend it, that's where you're going to lack in your good works. Okay, Because you won't be able to do certain things because your theology doesn't lend itself to you. And so the lack of theology hinders your good works. Because you can't be all that you can be. You can't do all that you can do. You say, well, Brandon, I, I think I have the gift of counseling. Great, I'm sure you do. And that was given to you embryonically maybe as, as the gift of, um, um, not edification, exhortation. So you're given the gift of exhortation, so you're real good at counseling, okay? Let's say that, not real good, but you have this knack to want to counsel people and give them good advice. Great. You will not be a better counselor until you learn your theology, You might be good at it, but it's embryonic. And the only way you're going to expand that counseling ministry is if you grow theologically. Because you're going to run into things, and if you don't know your theology, you're not going to know where to go with it at when someone asks you a certain question. Um, I don't know if I have an example off the top of my head, but um, anywho, um, that, that holds you back, as you could see. And, and so then you'll be rewarded up to a point in that, that, that gift, but you could have been rewarded for so much more had you gotten your theology straightened out. And then you could expand it to help more people. It, that's how it kind of works. That's how theology does. The more you know, the more useful you become to the Lord in using you. 
So it's like you, you, want to, you want to get out in ministry. You want to do things for God. Yes, I want my life to count. I want my life to be valued. Then learn your theology first. That's what you have to come down with. You just can't wing it, man, because then you're only going to be used at a certain level. I don't want you to be used just at a level and you're limited right there. That's no good for you. You've got to go higher, but it takes work. So when the Lord called me into ministry, he didn't, call, he, you know, he, he didn't say, okay, I want you to go work over here and this is where you're going to do. Jump on in the deep end and start swimming. No. He said, I'm calling you to ministry and the first thing I want you to do, I want you to get your education. And we're not going past that. You get your education. The, theological education, right? Go to seminary, get your theological education. And then we'll talk where I'm going to send you afterwards. So it was kind of like that. And, and so I can see the pattern even in my own life. Um, as far as unbelievers then, how does that affect them? Well, they're at a works judgment, but, they're, but it's not determining whether or not they're going to hell or not. They're going to hell if they're at the great white throne judgment. Okay, They're going to hell. But what is being decided at the great white throne judgment? The severity of torment in the lake of fire is being decided by their works, good or bad. Okay? And this is why Jesus said some will be beaten with fewer blows and some will be beaten with many blows. So he was illustrating degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. So when he talks that you'll be condemned, unvindicated, is that because these people's heart were so bad and their bad theology, and let's say they were a tree hugger, let's say they were... um, uh, I don't know, a Satanist or you know, a, a witch or whatever. Well, the, well, their theology, the words that come out of their mouth in their theology will condemn them because it led to bad works. And, and, and so their bad works will, will hurt them, giving them more of a severe uh, severity in the lake of fire. Versus, let's just say you compare a Satanist with a Mormon, Okay. Both are going to hell, right? Because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in the right Jesus Christ, not the wrong Jesus Christ. So, but who's going to have a more severe hell? The Satanist that has really bad theology, I mean, off the chart, like opposed to God rebellion theology versus the Mormon who has a mixture of Christian theology with Joseph Smith. Who's going to be beaten with more blows? The Satanist, because his theology is so bad compared to the Mormon. Now, both are bad, but there's degrees of badness, right? And even in behavior, imagine if you've ever studied Hitler, the kind of theological mindset that that guy had to have in order to do what he did. You, you, you get what I'm saying? That just doesn't happen. That comes from inside the guy. That's how bad his theology was. And and when I say theology, his spirituality, what he thought about the spiritual realm and what he thought his his plan was and who God is and all that other stuff. For him to do what he did, his theology was an awfully bad tree and produced bad, bad fruit, right? Compared to the garden variety pagan that, you know, just an old boy and he he doesn't hurt anybody and he maintains Judeo-Christian values, but he's not saved. Obviously, Hitler's going to have a worse hell because not only his theology is bad, but his works that came from it are bad compared to pagan Joe. 
and there's a difference. So that's what he's talking about being unvindicated and the fact that it's gonna be proven uh, at those, those Bema seats what you believed in your heart and how it translated into your works. Okay, so like I said, the passage can be reply, applied to uh, both believers and unbelievers. Uh, let's see if I miss anything. Okay, I already said that, okay, good. Okay, notice what he says. Uh, let me... Let me um, uh, make one more notation. At the top it says, for every idle word. And I didn't explain it, but I need to explain that. What, what, um, what are idle words? Whether it's a believer saying it or whether it's a, uh, an unbeliever saying it. Idle words are words that we use that are caused by unbelief in the heart that are baseless and entirely untrue. Okay, you pop off and say something about God, say something about reality, say something about anyone, say something about yourself that has no basis from the Bible of you saying something like that, that's gonna be used against you. It's talking about saying baseless things. Now we know the culture does this all the time. They just make stuff up, right? It's baseless. It's, there's no foundation. There's nothing that supports what they're saying, right? Uh, when they say, I feel like a transgender, that's baseless because it's going on feelings, not science or medical or anything like that. It's baseless. And so we're dealing with a culture that's making statements that are baseless. So those are what are called in the Bible, idle words. But you've got to be careful about you using the idle words as well. If you're making statements that have no basis, it's going to be used against you because it will affect your good works. Let's just say, you say, well, I heard Brandon talk that Jesus is coming back. I don't really believe Jesus is coming back. How would that baseless thing that you just said affect your good works? If you really, if you said, basically speaking, baselessly speaking, Jesus is not coming back in my lifetime. Because every generation, because of the scriptures, lives in the imminency of his return. So you, you can't say he's not coming in your life. Every generation has to say it's possible he could come in my lifetime because it's imminent. The word is imminent in there. You can't say, well, it's far off, probably won't happen in my lifetime. If you say that, that's baseless. So tell me how saying something like that would affect your actions, your good works or bad works. Saying something like that. That's not theologically correct. Okay, let me give you a clue. If, if you believe in the doctrine of imminency, which you're supposed to as a believer, that Christ could come back at any point in time, right now, tonight, whenever he decides to. If you believe in the doctrine of imminency, which is taught in the Bible, then it, sh it does affect the way you live. And how does it affect you? Well, according to scriptures, leave, believing in the imminency of the Messiah creates an urgency to evangelize it creates holy living and a more righteous life. And it actually creates uh, more good works 
because the person is trying to do all they can in light of the return and the rewarding of the Messiah to the believer. So it does create more works in the life of the believer versus just simply being Laodicea. So imminency, when people say, well, we we don't teach uh, prophecy around there, they're idiots because you're supposed to because it creates a fervor and a fire that gets lit under the person to do good works. So if you remove prophecy, that's why you get Laodicea. There's no urgency. There's no motivation. Well, things are just going to continue to roll on as they are. I'm just going to live my best life now. And then the person doesn't do the good works. But if you're living under time constraints, saying, guys, it could be any day, boom, I'm going to get on it. Okay, so that would affect my rewards. So if I, I say a baseless claim, well, Jesus is not going to come back in my lifetime. You're going to get lazy. You won't produce any works. And you'll be as useless as a bump on a pickle. And that's how you will be. Okay? So when you're at the Bema seat, you're, you're not going to have anything to be rewarded for. Therefore, the, the idle word costs you rewards, if that makes sense. That's, a, that's just one illustration of you saying something that's baseless theologically, okay? And that's why you want to get your theology straight so you don't say stupid things. Because what you say is what you believe, and what you believe will correlate to how you behave. Oh, okay, I'm seeing the connection here. Right, right. So, you want to have more rewards? Up your game in theology, and then it will produce a more effective ministry for you personally. He will use you at a greater level. Okay, let's continue on. So there should be a correlation between our belief and our works, which implies a living, uh, a living faith versus a dead faith. Now, I'm gonna, just going to brush on this real quick, and I want you to study this for next week. Now, when James interprets what Messiah is saying through all of this, because James is following Jesus, and James, James is, is using the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, Okay? Uh, Matthew 12 is not Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7 is, okay? Um, but anyway, James, you look at the book of James, it's wisdom literature of the New Testament, and it's based on the Sermon on the Mount. So when you're reading James, the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is not necessarily about salvation. It's the proper interpretation of the Mosaic law, which means that the Messiah says the law is both external and internal. So we're still on the theme of internal, Okay. So James then takes that and he uses the word dead faith versus living faith. And James is speaking to believers in context. And so this is not, James is not about salvation. James is written to believers about their sanctification of whether or not they have dead faith and living faith. Okay, but that's the same thing they, that, that Messiah is trying to say is that if your theology is good, then it should produce, there's a correlation, okay? Not an automatic, but a correlation with how you live. And this is James's point, okay? So James chapter two will say, what does it profit my brethren? Who's he speaking to, unbelievers? No, no, the context is set already in James. It's my brethren. 
These are people who are already saved, okay? So it's simple context, right? I don't know why Calvinists and I don't know why Arminians don't get this right. The context is my brethren. You saved people, okay? If someone says, if a believer says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Now, here's the thing. He's talking to believers, so he cannot be discussing salvation since they're already believers. But he is saying that uh, if someone says he has faith but does not have good works, can a faith save him? Now, the Catholics go crazy on this. The Catholics use this as proof that you have to have faith and good works to be saved. And their good works are the seven sacraments, right? That's, this is the capitalization of, of the Catholic Church not understanding this text because of, honestly, the, the false teachers that have been all through the Catholic Church for centuries. The Greek means, you see the word psychos in there, where we get the word psycho, okay? Yeah, it's not referring to someone that's crazy, but it's actually um, sosa, uh, sose, I should say, is referring to salvation, not, but not salvation, eternal salvation, but being saved from something, um, And what it means is, in the Greek, is to save one's physical life. That's why the word psychos is being used. So it doesn't refer to eternal salvation. It doesn't refer to a soul being saved out of hell. It doesn't refer to that. Similar passages, Genesis 19, 32, 1 Samuel 19, Jeremiah 48, Mark 3, 4, Luke 6, 9. Same sense. We're saving a person's physical life. Oh, that's interesting. I made another note on there. There is nothing in the Greek New Testament and the Septuagint, which is the, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew of the Old Testament, where the phrase means saved from hell. That's not what it means. Therefore, James's point is that sin can cause premature death for the believer, but the word of God, if received can preserve the physical life of the the believer. Why? Via obedience instead of sin. And that's why he he says, you must be a doer of the word. So a doer of the word is one who has living faith. A non-doer of the word is one believer who has a dead faith. Okay? So look what he says here in James 1 and James 5. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Why? And receive with meekness the implanted word. Why? Which is able to save your souls. Again, this word for souls does not mean saving from hell. It means, look, you believers need to stop acting filthy and wicked. Otherwise, in that disobedience of filthiness and wickedness, you will die physically because the wages of sin is death. So if you want to save your life from a premature death, you must get rid of bad behavior and receive the implanted word in you. So the only way you're going to receive the Bible, this is interesting, 
So when you go home and say, I'm gonna read the Bible, the only way you can receive it properly is if you put away all wickedness and filthiness and that has to get out first and then you can receive it. If you are maintaining wickedness, if you are maintaining the overflow of wickedness, you will not receive the word of God. You can hear it, but you won't receive it. So that's the basis of that. But again, what is it supposed to do? save your physical life by obedience because the word of God will tell you how to obey. Okay, second, James 5. The bookend of James, let him know that he who turns a sinner from error of his ways will what? Save a soul from death, not from hell, physical death and cover what? A multitude of sins. So, um, It's talking to the spiritually mature in the congregation that, hey, your job is to go after and and get these people back from living that way so they don't have a premature death and you'll save their soul, their life, their psychos from physical death, okay? From a lack of obedience. Now, the reason we know he's talking about this because he talks about death in verse one, sorry, chapter one, verse 15. And he says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, does what? Brings forth death, physical death. So an easy example of that, if you keep doing drugs, you're gonna die, right? If you keep doing something, it's gonna eventually kill you, right? Whatever. Drinking and driving is eventually gonna kill you and you're gonna kill someone else. Now he gives an illustration. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, well, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, okay? Hey man, this is like equivalent saying, there's a starving brethren. Notice who he's talking about. Does he say a homeless man? Look what it's saying. Who? A brother or sister. Your priority is to take care of other believers over the homeless. Okay? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of food, and one of you says, hey man, I'll be praying for you, and you walk off, what does he say? But you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, the physical body to survive? What does it profit? Right, it doesn't profit anything because the illustration is showing if you don't help this brother and sister, they will die if you don't help them. Okay. Remember, they're living in very perilous times. They're not like living in America or where no, if people are not afraid of starving. They were back then. So if you were starving, your only help was another brother or sister in the Lord to make sure you didn't starve to death. But what is it? He says, thus, also faith by itself, using the illustration, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And what does dead mean? doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that if a believer does that to another believer, his faith is ineffectual, it's non-working, it's non-producing, and it cannot produce the needed result in order to help this person from dying. So the, the believer's faith is ineffectual or in his term, dead. It's dead. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, okay? 
Again, look what he says in James 1. If any among you thinks he's religious, or you think you're really special, and does not bridle his tongue, for instance, but deceives his own heart, this one's religious as what? Useless. Now, there's a parallel here between your religion being useless, and he will explain what religion is, and your faith producing works, and both in the fact that if your faith is dead, it's useless, and then your religion is useless. He's not saying you're not saved. He's just saying the believer is useless, which corresponds to Laodicea when Messiah says, I wish you were neither whole nor hot, uh, but you are lukewarm, which means I want to vomit you out of my mouth because the water in Laodicea, when it came together, the hot springs and then the cold, uh, snowy-capped water uh, from Colossae came together, the water, if you put in your mouth, was undrinkable and it was unusable therapeutically, which means that being lukewarm means the believer is useless. It's all tied together. So when James says a believer's faith is dead, he's in effect saying he's useless. That's what Laodicea is. There are a bunch of believers that are absolutely useless because their faith, even though they are saved, is dead, which is non-producing, non-working, doesn't, uh, doesn't fulfill what its purpose is supposed to be. And that's why he says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth because you're in, the, in this useless state. And then he, what does he tell Laodicea? He tells Laodicea, you, because you are useless in Laodicea, cannot evaluate your own self because your theology is so screwed up that you think you're doing good. Your theology is so messed up, you think that what you have is a blessing from God. I tell you, it's the opposite, he says. You're spiritually blind, you're naked, you need to buy ISAP from me, you need to buy gold from me, but you can't see it. So all this is tied back to what we're trying to explain. The inward must be fixed in order to affect the outward. The heart must change. And the only way it changes is believing proper theology. That's where it all starts. So if you're saying, I want to go for God. I want to, I want to grow and become more like Christ. That's where, that's where it begins. It doesn't begin, well, to this week, I'm going to vow not to cuss all week. That, that's, not where, that's not where it starts. That's not where it starts. It starts inward, not outward. If you really, really want to grow. Now, you can play the game like Laodicea all you want and just work on the outside and put the bumper stickers all over your car and, and you know, tweet your, your little verses out of context on Twitter and you can play the game. But at the end, you're nothing but Laodicea you will be revealed at the judgment seat for that. So here's where I want to stop because it goes deeper in James and I don't have the time to do it. We'll do it next time. But what I want you to understand and maybe think about this week, first of all, what is my mouth revealing? Okay? What, what is the correlation between what I believe 
and how it's manifesting in good works or bad works in my life. That's some self-evaluation we all need to do. And that will tell you a lot, okay? Anyways, take a five-minute break. We'll come back. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.